we've been going through a series in the book of Ephesians. So uh, we're going to be in chapter three this morning. If you want to open up in scripture there, whether you have a Bible or you have a phone app, we have Bibles up here that we would love to give you on this table. If you don't have one, um, or you can download one, Apple will give you one for free in the app store. Um, if you would stand with me, we're going to read Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. We stand uh, simply to, to let our bodies lead our souls into this kind of reverential experience of reading God's Word. Um, we transition in our gatherings as we open the Word to listening to God. We want to face Him, we want to embrace Him and actually draw near, and then we want to actually listen and see what He would have to say to us by the Spirit through His Word. So, I'm going to read this, and then we will pray. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this passage of Scripture, its claims are astounding. What's laid before us is almost unbelievable that uh, the Apostle Paul could write to everyday followers of Jesus and churches in the city of Ephesus and say, I'm praying that you would experience the fullness of God dwelling in you and among you. And quite frankly, we find that pretty tough to believe in our day, our moment, our city, with our burdens, with our pain, with our sorrow, with our joys and distractions. And so, Holy Spirit, if if this is really true as we believe it is, help us see it today. Help it be real to us today. And give us the wisdom to live into it today. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So we've been going through this letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. And we have, we've called the series The Geography of Heaven because we believe that the picture painted in Ephesians is that in Jesus Christ coming to the world, living, teaching how to draw near into the kingdom of God, laying down his life and rising again from death, he made an altogether new reality possible for us. Nothing less than the reality of heaven on earth that can be lived into now with the assurance that one day God will make the two into one. That when Jesus returns, heaven and earth will be here and will be one. And until he returns, his spirit makes it possible for you and for me, by virtue of being made in God's image, to follow Jesus in a real way 
that makes the presence of God real to us here and now. And so just as geography feels so real and tactile to us, um, heaven is a reality that can be lived into that is even more real and more true than the geography that we walk upon. So we're diving into Ephesians, and we've been trying to unpack what it has to say about that reality. Here in Ephesians 3, we kind of get to the, to, the, to the apex of this vision of heaven on earth. I don't know if you caught some of the astounding claims that the Apostle Paul laid in here, um, but, but he's praying that the people in Ephesus, in these churches, would become the dwelling place of God in a kind of fullness that is unbelievable, where the peace and joy and love of God would just naturally flow and that we would be filled with those things. I mean, this is kind of the vision of, of what we all long for, right? The good life. And Paul lays it out here and is praying for it. Last week, we were in the same text, right? We said that this is such a significant portion of Scripture that we want to spend two weeks here. Last week, we talked about how um, we need power to follow Jesus. That's the overall main theme of this text. We need power to follow Jesus. That's not something that we think about um, too often in the West, I don't think, because we think we can just cognitively get our way to following Jesus. If we can comprehend Jesus, then we can follow him. If you've tried to do that for very long, well, this is what the Bible says, so I'm just going to go out and do it you realize really quickly that it's not as simple as merely knowing up here intellectually. We need power to follow Jesus. We need power to live into the reality of God's presence here and now. Last week, the first element that we saw here about this kind of power, how we can have the power of God, is through prayer. Lives of prayer. We need power through prayer in verse 17 to, to know Jesus. We need it in verse 18 to experience Jesus. We need it in verse 19 to be filled with Jesus. These are just things that Paul lays out here as though it's nothing. But growing as followers of Jesus requires power. And the first way that we experience that power is by learning to pray. And we talked about how hard that is last week. Uh, if you want to go in and listen to the teaching from last week, I would encourage you to do so because this is going to kind of build in, build off of and dovetail off of that. But last week we talked about prayer. And if this is your church family, our aim that encompasses so much of everything else about what it means to follow Jesus is that we would become the kind of followers of Jesus who have learned to love prayer. Not just that we would hunker down and white-knuckle praying, but that we would become the kind of people who love prayer, who find life in it. So, last week we talked about prayer, how it's the lungs and the breath of following Jesus in the same way that you can't uh, live very long without breathing. We can't follow Jesus very well without praying. So, last week we talked about that, about prayer. This week, um, we're going to be talking about the second element of power in following 
Jesus. So I want you to imagine for, with me uh, for a moment this, this analogy, okay? So I have three small children, and each of them love balloons. Love balloons. I don't know what it is about a balloon, but the wonder when a small child sees a balloon, this little thing, oh, you, you like balloons. Stop. My oldest son back there is trying to say that he doesn't love balloons. All right, all right. But Matt, how do you fill a balloon? So there, there are probably a couple ways that you could fill a balloon. One is more difficult, right? Like imagine you have no conception of how to get air into a balloon. All, you're, all you are told is you got to get air into it. You could try, I suppose, to stretch it out to like create capacity for air to get inside of it. And you, you can imagine how difficult that would be, right? If you've ever tried to like put water or sand into a balloon, it's a very difficult exercise. Um, what you need to do is you need to breathe into it. And in the act of breathing into it, it expands. Oftentimes, we approach our Christian faith trying to stretch ourselves and white-knuckle our growth, like a balloon being stretched, as though if we could just stretch it out far enough, we could stretch our souls far enough, if we could do enough good stuff, if we could obey enough Bible, if we could attend church enough, then the balloon of our soul will expand, and then I suppose God will just fill it. But actually, the way that Christians grow is much more like being put into the condition of a balloon being blown up. Prayer is the filling of the balloon of our souls with the love, the fullness, the joy, the peace of God. You see how different those two are? You will be exhausted and miserable if you try and be the kind of follower of Jesus who just does everything that Jesus says through your own effort rather than being with the one through prayer who can fill you up that those other things would flow. You're following with me, right? But there's another way to constrain the growth of the balloon. There's an external way to constrain the balloon. What happens if you have a balloon in a small box? No matter how hard you blow it up, it will fill the box, but it will be constrained by the box, right? And you might blow as hard as you can and fill up the corners a little bit more, and you might be really impressed and like, yes, we filled it up to capacity. But what would be easier? <laughs> Take away the walls of the box, right? Today we're talking about how as we seek to follow Jesus, the second way that we increase in power to follow him is by living lives of self-sacrificing, other-oriented love. We've been conditioned to live lives that are centered primarily with the focal point on us. It's as though the balloon that we have is inside the box that is our little life, and we're seeking for God to give us fullness in the constraints of a solitary, isolated life. But that's not what God made us for. We see both in the creation story and in the life of Jesus that we're not fully human until we're living a life that is intended to be loving towards God and other people, right? And so 
today what we're going to see is that as we take away the protective walls around our lives, where we, we kind of guard ourselves, we maximize our future, we have a lot of security, as we take those walls down and take the risks of living other-oriented, self-sacrificing lives of love, we experience spiritual growth and power beyond what we can imagine. So, this week, uh, we see Paul talk about, in this passage of Scripture, love in two fundamental ways. If last week was we need prayer, this week we need love. The first one is in verse 17, where he says, I'm praying for you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, that's the first time that he mentions love in this passage. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. Remember, there are a couple of things going on here. First, as you read the New Testament, there's something that we need to just be shaken out of, and that is our individualistic lenses, because English isn't very good at translating uh, uh, second-person plurals. So the you here is a y'all. Y'all. I'm praying that Christ may dwell in y'all's hearts through faith. That y'all being rooted and grounded in love. First thing you got to know about living a life of love is that it requires you to have other people in your life. That's what the church is. That's why the church is necessary. The church doesn't fit into your little box to help you maximize those corners of the balloon space. The church is, is a new community where we live by different rules. And the foremost rule is love. How did Jesus sum up the law? He said, the greatest commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law isn't a rule to stretch out our balloon with our own effort. The law is intended to show us the path that puts us in the best place to be filled with God himself. What is the life of being truly human? So when Jesus says those things, he's saying, you want to have a full life? Love God and love people. Um, Paul basically, here in verse 17, here's what he's simply saying. We must let God's love flow through us. Living with that box constraint around our life is trying to be a reservoir of God's love. We're basking in it. Everything that we receive, we kind of store up. But you hit capacity. And eventually it goes stale. We were intended to actually be conduits, rivers, channels, not a reservoir. And so if we want the power to continue to grow as followers of Jesus, and in, hear me, when I say growing as followers of Jesus, Sometimes we think like, oh yeah, that's like the optional add-on for being like a second-tier Christian. When, when we talk about maturity, what we're talking about is growing to experience more and more of God's fulfilling presence and power here and now. Like if you got in on the following Jesus thing, the worst option is just to stop with like one foot in. Because <laughs> then you have all the obligations of following Jesus, but none of the experience of the fulfillment and fruit of following Jesus. When Paul says that we would be rooted and grounded in love, he's simply saying that we must be willing and prioritizing God's love flowing through us to other people. 
Jesus said, love God, love neighbor. Paul himself says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, our charge is Jesus has come, trust in him, turn to him, live with him in his kingdom. The aim of our charge, what's the point of all of that? The aim of our charge is love. I wonder if we pulled the room, what we th would think it means to be a mature Christian. Probably here also to words like, oh, it'd be to be holy, um, to know God, all of these things. The vision in, in the New Testament is actually that of becoming a loving person. To be holy before God is to love God fully and to love people as ourselves. God wants to, through you, turn you into a channel of his love to other people for his sake. So to be rooted and grounded in love, what do, the, what do these things mean? We get a couple of analogies, a couple of images. Paul mixes metaphors all the time. It would not go well in your English class, but here I think we get a little bit of insight into what he's saying. Okay, He says, to be rooted. To be rooted. Um, that gives us the picture of a tree. There's soil where, where we have roots that are going down. Remember, y'all, we all have roots. Don't imagine you as a little potted plant that's blowing over out in the wind. Those are fake anyway. No one wants to be a fake plant in the Lord's kingdom. Us together as a tree planted in the soil of love. What does a tree get out of soil? Nutrients, right? That it can keep growing. That tells us that, that we ourselves grow by an experience of love together from each other and from the Lord, who is the source of that love we have for each other anyway. Um, the, the very place that we're rooted is in God himself. We've talked about through all of Ephesians, this idea of union with Christ. He says, you are in Christ. There's this weird metaphysical language that Paul uses, he continually says, you who are in Christ. This is, it kind of breaks our modern notions about what it means to be in a place. But for Paul and for the New Testament, here's the assumption. We're all sitting in chairs in upside down in Westwood, Los Angeles, California, United States, Earth. As real at Cosmos, whatever you want to go to, next level. As real as you are sitting here and now. If you've turned to Jesus and said, I'm following you, I'm yours, surrender to you. Just as much as you are in a real way that no one would doubt, you're sitting here in Los Angeles, so too you are, you are in Jesus Christ. His presence has sealed itself within you by the Holy Spirit. You are never far from God. That inness of being in Jesus is the rootedness that Paul's talking about here. That as we are rooted in God together, in his love, we, are, we experience the nutrition that we need to grow up and mature as the dwelling place of God himself. What does this do? Well, this helps give us power against pride. The worst, uh, the worst thing 
to your growing in Jesus, to you experiencing more of the power and presence of God, is pride. This kind of sense that you can do it yourself, that you're pretty well established, that you're pretty self-sufficient, that you have your life put together, especially as you look around in this church and think, oh man, all these people, especially the ones that I know pretty well, they're falling apart. But if we're rooted in love, it humbles us to see that none of us got into this thing on our own anyway. We were loved by someone outside of us, right? All we're doing is passing on what we ourselves have received. So even if you think, you look back on your week and like, man, I did a pretty good job loving people this week. Like, I'm kind of impressed with myself. It wasn't you in the first place. You're rooted in the love of God. So think about how this works in the way that we live together. If I do a good job loving you, and I feel that you didn't do a good job of loving me, pride would tell me, how dare you? But if we're rooted in a love that never was from us in the first place, it was the love of Jesus through us. If it wasn't from us in the first place, we don't have a claim to say, I did my part and you didn't do your part. There's a blockage somewhere in there. Like we want to see that reciprocal love to one another, but do you see how humility protects us from pride that thinks we're just really good at loving people while other people are really bad at loving people? You will die if you do not see that the love you are able to pass on to others didn't originate in you in the first place. Protects us from pride, but not just rooted, we're also grounded in love. If being rooted means we find our nutrition, our power through nutrition to grow in love, grounded, the word here in the Greek actually is like foundation, like stable, unshakable. Foundation is our security. Your security is ultimately in love. This like shatters our notions about what it means to be safe and secure and stable in life. It actually has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has everything to do with being grounded in love. In LA, one of the least secure things you can do is leave things outside overnight or leave your car unlocked, right? If you lived here very long, you know that. I've had a bike stolen. Our car's been, it wasn't even broken into because we left it unlocked. Someone just kind of opened it up and took stuff out of it. So I don't, that's not like breaking and entering. Uh, look over there, bay window. Last night, someone shattered the, the, the window over there and broke into another car right outside there. Didn't seem like they were trying to get in here and steal anything. But we live in a place that we feel is unsafe. Can't leave your car unlocked here, but actually there's some parts of Canada where people intentionally leave their cars unlocked. Why? Because it's not uncommon to run into a grizzly bear as you're walking down the street. And there's this mutual agreement that it's better to take the risk of being taken advantage of and your car opened up and stuff stolen out of it than it is to leave your cars locked, protect your stuff, and lose your life to a grizzly bear. So there's like common practice. You can jump into anyone's car if you're fleeing from a grizzly bear. 
But here's the thing. If, we're, if our solid foundation is actually in being loved and in loving others, we hear the call from God to love and we feel fear. Our first component, our like first knee-jerk response is, yeah, but if I love, fears that we'll be broken into, taken advantage of, walked all over in a city that lives by scarcity and image and hurry as its primary modes of living. But what you and I can't see with our physical eyes is that scarcity, image, and hurry are actually the grizzly bears roaming around seeking to devour people from the inside out. That actually, the way to be hollowed out and unfulfilled as a human being is to cave to the threat of the world. They start cultivating insecurity inside of us. You'll only be happy if you get the best job, making the most money and attract the hottest spouse, driving the latest Tesla, taking the grandest vacations. And we don't walk around thinking it, but we're swimming in it. We can't help but feel it. I mean, I realized a couple years ago after like, I have this implicit assumption, whether it's from my story or what I'm immersed in externally, I don't even know where it comes from. But we had a few months where like big bills ate into our savings and like we were going backwards month over month. And it exposed in me this notion that the only successful life is the one where more and more financial security happens. And like I would have never said that. Who cares about money? But I felt it like in my gut, right? That reveals something because as we're immersed in those patterns of thinking, right? The, the grizzly bear, as it attacks us internally, we become the ones who attack each other externally. Because then we're living by scarcity. Then we're living by image. Then we're living in hurry, and we just don't have time to love each other. And most of us, when we think about living an unloving life, we think about like willfully violating someone like the window over here. But actually, you want to know where we're far more guilty of unlove? Our apathy. We just don't have time to love people. And in the not doing, in the not doing, it's really easy to justify and distance ourselves from the needs of others. I wonder what would happen if we actually slowed down enough and said, all right, Jesus, I'm just going to renounce the thoughts that my security is found in what I do. My savings account, my resume, my education, my reputation. None of those things have my ultimate security. Good things that you should care about and cultivate. Not saying that. But ultimately, I am secure because I am loved. And I find security and real human fulfillment in loving other people. Like we, we strategize what we prioritize, right? You have a plan for what you really care about. Even if it's just like, okay, here's my plan for ultimately getting home in time to watch Netflix. 
what would it look like to start strategizing love for other people? Doesn't it just feel so utterly otherworldly? To say, like, okay, what's my plan for using my resources and my time to love people? Like, I feel that conviction because I don't do that very well. But that's what Paul is praying here because once you see how loved you are and how secure you are, and you see that nothing you do improves that standing, what do you have to gain? All you have to gain is greater fulfillment and joy and peace. And that path comes through receiving and giving love. What if, what if we could be a church who more and more are committed and devoted to learning to love each other and to learning to love the people around us. Because that kind of, of maturity and stability that comes from being rooted and grounded in love is where spiritual authority comes from. It's where people can see, you've been with Jesus. There's something altogether different about you. Because we do a lot of time praying for friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors and classmates who don't yet know Jesus. And we're like, we want you to know him too. We really care there. But we're so atrophied in the spiritual power to really show off the life of being near Jesus that I wonder if that's God's primary invitation to us. To say, start living this out. Get really close to me in praying and loving and watch what happens. So we got to be willing to let God's love flow through us. But that's not the only place that Paul speaks of. Um, that's not the only place that Paul speaks of love in this passage. Uh, there's a typo, but point two is we must let God's love flow through us. It should be to us. <laughs> to us here, all right? Point number two, we got to let God's love flow to us. We, the walls around that balloon that we started out the analogy with, they actually prohibit us from experiencing more of God. Not just pouring out in lives of love to other people. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 18, 19, look at this, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Take a second just, just to feel and see and acknowledge what the Apostle Paul's writing here. Praying that you may have strength. There's our need for power again. To understand, to comprehend with all the saints, the church, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We, we're in a real heady information context, right? But Paul here is praying for knowing that goes beyond knowing. 
if you're following Jesus, if you're committed to Jesus Christ, here's his heart for you. That every day you would experience his love for you. That it would be real to you. That it wouldn't just be up here, I know about his love because he died for me on the cross as I learned. But that you would experience that love by getting near to him and in all of your brokenness and all of your weakness and all of your need, knowing those truths about his love. That it would become real. That's why in our discipleship groups, first question that we ask each other every week is, has Jesus been real to you this week? The worst, the worst kind of trying to follow Jesus is just cramming our heads with more information. We need transformation. We need heart knowledge. We need to experience Jesus. That's why the Spirit has been given. That's why Jesus says, hey, disciples, followers, it's better for you that I go away. It's be Me right here, standing visibly to you, it's actually better for me to go. Because if I go, the Spirit's going to get inside of you. And all of this is going to become real. And might I say, can I just say that I think for most of us, the most pressing need that we feel in our lives is all the internal stuff that we're burdened and crippled by. Fear, anxiety, depression, loneliness, hunger, meaning, purpose. All of it. That's what Paul knows in his praying that would become real in the love of Jesus and healing would be experienced. All right. Here's how these two kind of play in together. As we are committed to loving other people, we take those boundaries off of our life, the box is taken away, the walls are gone. We're committed to becoming the kind of loving people that Jesus wanted us to be. He says, love your enemies. We have a hard time loving people that we disagree with. We have a hard time loving people who, who hurt us accidentally. And Jesus said, love your enemies. As we give ourselves to that kind of love, we actually experience more of God's love for us. Here's, how, here's a little example of how it works. Um, my son, my older son, Hudson, he's not going to remember this. Um, Hudson, he was like one. He was sick. He, uh, he actually thrown up. Sorry, this is a little embarrassing, Hudson. I should have ran this by you before I was up here sharing it. Um, he was really sick, little one-year-old. There's no worse heart-wrenching kind of experience than your little kid sick in front of you. There's nothing that you can do. And so we're trying to get him to sleep. Eventually, we get him to sleep, but then we lay him down in the crib. He cries a little bit. Ah, uh, we got to try and like let him work it out and fall asleep. He needs sleep so badly. Go in, check on him after maybe 10 minutes, and he's fast asleep, but his arm is caught in the crib, like bent backwards. And I realized that while we thought we were just letting him cry it out, he's crying out in pain. My heart went from right here, burst through my chest. And I leapt forward and got his arm out as quick as I could and held him and went out into our glider chair and was rocking him. And he was still asleep, but I realized, like, oh, my gosh, this 
could have been really bad, seemed okay. Um, but as I'm rocking him there, I could still smell the vomit that's on him. And you want to know what didn't happen? I didn't go, oh gosh, get away. I need to clean you off before you can get near me. Because the peril that my son had been in placed my love upon him regardless of what he smelled like. You want to know what the next thought was? Oh my gosh, this is the Father's love for us. As we stink with the stuff that we get caught up in in this life, and he sees the stuff that we've got stuck in, our arms are bent backwards in the midst of a world that wants to undo us, he leaps forward in love. So one of the barriers to you experiencing the love of Jesus more profoundly this morning is knowing what you smell like. <laughs> we all know that there's stuff that God certainly ain't pleased about in our life. And if we start to think that that's the primary thing that dictates how he feels about us, what do we got to do? We got to go take a bath and clean ourselves up before we can get near to him. That's why Paul prays. I'm bowing my knees before the Father, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might know how high it is, how wide it is, how deep it is, how long it is. Because we put those walls up and think, surely his love can't go past that. Surely his love can't go past that. And it certainly isn't going there or there. Or as long as I keep myself in the box and I'm doing a pretty good job of it, I'm good. Them over there? God doesn't love people with that addiction or from that ethnicity or background or that political preference or that socioeconomic status, or just their life's just falling apart, so surely God's not pleased with them. So, really, really simply, I hope what you could see is we need the kind of power to love other people, to experience the love of Jesus that blows away any of the walls that we could possibly put up by virtue of our story, our pain, the narrative that we bought. And here are a couple of walls that hopefully give us some handles. The first wall is the theological barrier. All right? The theological barriers are the, are the, the thoughts in our mind that say, surely God doesn't love me if. And Paul addresses that when he says the breadth, the height, the length, the depth of the love of Christ. No matter what your story is, no matter where you come from, no matter where you go, the love of Jesus Christ through the empty tomb has been poured out in the cosmos, and it's the thing that will have the final say. We can't allow our thoughts about God's limitations actually rule and reign over the truths of what Scripture has declared over us. We have to blow out of the water any wall that would say God's love has a termination point. Second, emotional barriers. This is one that probably is far more subtle than those theological ones. Um, there are two extremes. The reason emotions matter is because even though we might think we believe certain stuff, when we get down into it, 
Our feelings dictate our experience. They reveal how we're experiencing something. So someone walks into the room and says something in a certain way, you feel a certain thing. It's because you experienced what they said in a certain way, probably patterned off of how people have treated you in the past or whatever. You can be either totally unaware of your emotion, just box it up, that'll cut you off from the experience of God's love, or you can be totally unconstrained with your emotion and unable to actually speak truth to your emotion. Two sides of a coin that have to do with an emotional barrier. I'm going to read from a Christian psychologist named David Benner. He is absolutely profoundly wise. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but I think it's really helpful. He says this, um, it may be that you grow uncomfortable when you think about a love relationship with God. Perhaps you judge yourself to be more rational than emotional and conclude that the relationship with God I'm describing, that being of a deep, loving relationship with God, is for someone else. But is love really a need only for some of us? The deepest need for all human beings is to surrender to perfect love. That need and love itself will, however, be experienced differently by different people. Encountering God, real experience, in love is as important for people who live in their head as those who live in their heart. Both need to learn to ground their identity on experiential knowing of themselves as deeply loved by God. But each will face different challenges in doing that. Tending to not know or trust feelings, people who predominantly live in thoughts and rational analysis need to learn to embrace their feelings. Doing so is a way of becoming more fully alive and fully human. Such people, and I count myself the author, and me as uh, among them, have forgotten how to experience the world through feelings. Feelings bring new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. Genuinely meeting God in love not simply in thoughts, will therefore always be deeply growth-producing. People who live in close contact with their emotions, on the other hand, need to learn to move beyond the superficial feelings that are the center of their experience to a deeper and more genuine emotional encounter with the world. Such people do not need fewer emotions. They need deeper and more truly authentic ones the ones from which they defend themselves with sentimentality and superficial emotional responses. They also need to learn to embrace critical thinking by which feelings can be judged and reality more firmly embraced. Genuinely meeting, in, meeting God in love offers an opportunity to move beyond sentimentalism and emotionalism. It offers a chance to truly encounter love, to critically reflect on the meaning of that love and to ground yourself in it. Whether you live more up here and you need to grow in valuing what you feel and not dismissing it as invalid, irrational, or you live down here and you live through feelings, both of us need to realize that well-trained emotional living is essential for life with God. So I wonder which end of that spectrum you would consider yourself and how maybe that is a barrier between you and God's love in new depths. All right, third barrier, structural barrier. This is really simple. Have you structured your life?
to prioritize loving other people? Have you structured your life to love the church? Jesus says really clearly that we're called to love one another. You can go and read the dozens of one another's in the New Testament, right? So as we're present with each other, we need to be committed to loving each other. Second group of people that we need to prioritize loving that Scripture commands is loving the poor. If you follow Jesus, you must care about the poor. And if you don't know poor people, uh, there, we live in a world that is, has hidden needs from us. You must care about the poor. And I think we know, yeah, we should love each other in the church, but then the place where we maybe are the most culpable for overlooking love is those who are poor. Scripture in the New Testament says you must remember the poor. If you have enough money to save, you have enough money to love. And so I just want to I just want to call us to figure it out. Like it's it's not on God to force someone into to your purview. We live in a major city with one of the most significant homeless crises in the world. It's all over. And so maybe we have structural barriers in loving. And if you need a tangible way to love people, we have ministries as a church to help you learn that pick up those training wheels. And so come up, talk to me, talk to someone with, we aren't wearing lanyards today. Um, talk to someone that you see up here who looks like they might have any idea about how to serve people, all right? We would love to help you learn that. And then the last one is relational barriers. And truthfully, this is oftentimes where we don't love people who are different than us. Um, Paul Miller is an author, I'm just gonna blow through these. What gets in the way of us loving people? Next slide. If there, there's maybe not a slide. All right, I'm just going to read these. I deleted the slide. It was too many slides. What gets in the way of us loving people? Relational barriers. First one, I know what's best for you. Judging people. So we just say, your life isn't put, enough, put well enough together. Like, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So we don't feel compassion and we don't serve and love people. Second one, I'm better than you. Self-righteousness, right? This is politics. Like, you're just a bad human being. You don't deserve being served. Third one, this is what you should do. Legalism blocks compassion. Uh, the first one keeps us far away from people, judging other people. The second one tries to, like, get us in their life, and all we want to do is, like, tell them to make different decisions. All that to say, relational barriers block love, okay? Theological barriers, none of us are beyond the love of Jesus. Emotional barriers, our heart and how we experience or don't experience emotion can block us. Structural barriers, we prioritize loving other people in the church. Poor relational barriers, things that get in the way. All right.